All right, hey, welcome to week three of Answering the Tough Ones. And tonight, uh, we are going to be walking through the question, is Scripture reliable? So I know, actually, hang on. Boom and boom, love it. We're going to be uh, going through the question, is Scripture reliable? So I know, um, especially from, and I don't, I, I don't see her anyway, the, the woman who asked the question um, toward, during the Q&A session last week, who was asking about inerrancy, right? And uh, talking about, hey, how do we know? And, and I know maybe my answer to that may have unsettled some of you, <laughs> um, which I didn't intend for it to do that, um, primarily because I knew I was going to circle back around this week and talk about at length. Um, how, how do we know that what was written um, th- back then is what we actually have now? And how do we know that that's a faithful, um, uh, that that process faithfully transcribed the message that God wants us to have, um, namely about his son Jesus and uh, the centrality of Christ um, in, in all of reality. So <clears throat> that's what we're going to be talking about tonight um, is the reliability of Scripture. How do we know that um, what the Bible that sits, um, well, wherever it sits in your house, whether it's on your bedside table or you know a bookshelf or whatever, how do you know that that is a reliable document? So just by way of overview, we've already covered, is there truth and can you know it or can we know it? Then last week we covered, are science and Christianity compatible? This week we're covering, is scripture reliable? Um, and then I th- uh, already week one and two are up online. If you miss those for some reason, then you can uh, go back and um, listen to those and also download the notes if you don't have them. Week three will be up next week. Obviously it hasn't happened yet, what's happening right now. Then next week, we're going to be uh, asking the question, is the resurrection historical? So what about the historical reliability of the resurrection of Jesus? Did this actually happen? Was he dead? Did he literally, physically, bodily get up from the dead and remain alive? Uh, Week five, if God is good, why is there evil? So obviously, that that question probably is the most pervasive one that we get um, in all its many forms. Um, Most people will just call it... or. Uh, title it the problem of evil should be a should be a good time and then week six we're going to tackle you know one of the many social issues that are going on in the world right now but um, one that's been a a pretty significant shift over the last few months and that is what is marriage and should same-sex marriage be permitted Um, what does God think about this okay so that's where we are Um, and but tonight we're going to Focus in on, um, is Scripture reliable? So let me pray for our time, and then we'll get started. Well, Father, um, we, we know that your Son told us um, when he walked on the earth that there's only one teacher, and I'm definitely not him. So um, we confess that, um, that Jesus is our teacher, and that through the power of the Holy Spirit that he will instruct us tonight. And so I just pray that um, uh, just my feeble attempt at communicating um, the truth um, that's, that's been found over the last um, really 3,000 years um, would, would just uh, sink down deep into our hearts and that we can know and trust um, that the process by which you chose to give us your word um, is reliable and that we can be confident in what you have chosen to preserve for us. Um, we just offer you this time. We pray that you would come, instruct us, um, not so we can 
um, know all the right answers, but so that we can walk more confidently, more intimately with you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the first thing, as I thought about how do I want to kind of open this time up, the first thing I want to say to you is like buckle up and get ready for drinking water from a fire hydrant. That's about as, um, you know, exactly right. <laughs> I mean, it literally, as I was thinking about it, I was like, what would be a good image for this? And it, it literally is like someone who goes to a fire hydrant and it just blows them over. Um, I, I really wrestled with um, whether or not to uh, give as much information as I'm going to tonight, but at the end of the day, I was like, man, I think I'm going to go along with the, the teaching technique of, of, of somebody who throws plaster at a wall, and um, most of the plaster he throws at the wall falls down, but some of it sticks, and the some of it that sticks is stuff that you can build on um, at, you know, in, in the future. So um, I promise you, you're probably going to have quite a few questions about um, the stuff that I'm um, going to be talking about. And again, just like we've done with the other sessions, please hold your questions to the end. We will have some time at the end. Um, David and Joseph, who have already been up on the stage, are back tonight. And so the three of us will, um, will do Q&A for you at the end, and we can w- work through um, whatever questions you have. So um, please write your questions as you go, and, uh, uh, and we'll address them at the end. All right, here's some common challenges that I typically hear um, doing great questions or just speaking to, you know, to people out on the street um, around this issue. All right, the first one is something like this. A book that's been translated so many times can't be trusted. Who's heard that one before? All right, probably, yeah, most, most people have. So we're going to, and I think it'll be clear, these, the, the, uh, question, the answer to these questions will be clear by the end. So that's actually a really easy one to answer, and I think you'll see at the end, like, oh, yeah, um, it's really easy. All right, secondly, the text was corrupted over time. So you're, you're typically going to hear this from uh, primarily two groups of people. One of them are Muslims. Muslims, um, um, one of the foundations of their, their doctrine is that the New Testament was corrupted over time, which opened the door for Muhammad to come and have the final word um, for, uh, for Allah or for God. <clears throat> the other group are... Um, Mormons. And again, similar deal, um, core to their doctrine is the fact that the New Testament is incomplete um, and that um, ultimately it was corrupted over time so that what Joseph Smith was receiving from God was a correction, a final word um, it, that is the, uh, the Book of Mormon. So um, definitely we'll address those as well. And then the third one is that Jesus was declared divine by the church at the Council of Nicaea in uh, 8325. Um, this is also fairly common in, in uh, pop culture. Um, there's a lot, there are a lot of people who hold that uh, the church deified Jesus, that, that, that uh, Jesus actually was just a man. Um, he believed that, maybe he believed that he was some kind of special prophet, but that he actually died and, and was not resurrected, but his followers were so enamored by him that they created this legendary status about him that carried over until 325 where these councils got together, voted on it, like, we're not really sure, so let's, let's vote on this, and then deified him. Okay, those are, those are some common challenges around the stuff we're going to be talking about tonight. But before I get into all the weeds about all this, I want to give you something that's really practical, okay? And that's one of the goals for, for this class is to give you a, a practical handles on how to answer tough questions that you're asked by people in, in the public uh, square. So pull out your, the handout that is the five Ps, okay? Um, there's a handout that says the five Ps. 
if you don't have that handout, it's it's back in the back by the rest of um, by the rest of the materials. All right, everybody got that one. So typically, if somebody asks you some, typically it it, it sounds like the first uh, challenge. A book translated so many times can't be trusted, or or why do you trust the Bible? Look, the Bible is a book written by men. Like you know, why why should I believe it? Um, the, this is a really good um, this is a really good tool for you to kind of put into your kit to to recall. Um, and it's great because it uses alliteration, and you just remember, okay, it's the five Ps. Um, and so <clears throat> let's walk through those five Ps really quickly, okay? Um, the first one is profession. What does the Bible say about itself? And, and uh, as you can see from those two passages um, that are uh, cited there, um, Scripture um, uh, says about itself that it is God-breathed, um, that, it is, that it is useful for for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, um, so that the the so that the um, uh, the follower of God can be that is, is is fully equipped through this book. So it's it's professing that it is the word of the written word of God. Okay. The second um, aspect of the five Ps is production. All right. And and the unique thing about the production of of Scripture is that here you have sixty six books written over thousands of years by a bunch of different authors, and, and over this thousands of years and, and multiple authors that are writing uh, this, uh, these letters and books that are later to be compiled into the 66 books that we know as the Bible, um, really all share one common theme, and that is Jesus Christ. Okay, So um, that in itself is a miracle. It's like, hey, the, the, um, the Old Testament is looking toward Christ, the New Testament is looking back at Christ, and at the very center of everything is Christ. Um, so... Um, there's really, uh, as far as genres of literature, I mean, the, the Bible really does kind of like stand alone um, as, as a work um, because of this unifying theme of Christ. Then thirdly, preservation. And as you can see on, that, uh, on the handout, um, the, the amount of manuscript evidence that we have um, that has been preserved for us to be able to study and look at and, and, and do our best to to try to see, like, hey, is, has, has this been accurately preserved for us um, far outweighs any other uh, document in the ancient world, okay? So um, as, as uh, David and Joseph and I were talking um, before this started, it, I mean, really, it was kind of like, hey, um, do you trust your history books? Like, do you trust um, any kind of work in, in uh, ancient literature? And most people, especially historians, would be like, well, yeah, I mean, we kind of have to. Like, if we're going to know anything at all, then there needs to be a level of trust about that. And, it, and, and ultimately, the, I mean, the answer for, for this is, well, I mean, the, the Scripture has been preserved in such a way that if you're going to trust any other work of literature, like, S- Scripture outweighs them all, like, by far, with the amount of evidence that we have, um, uh, you know, epigraphic, extant evidence that still exists today um, that gives us a faithful preservation of what was written over time. And, and frankly, we're going to spend the vast majority of our time tonight on point number three and the preservation of the text. And then lastly, prophecy. What does the Bible say about itself? There's, there's multiple prophecies um, all in the Scripture. And, the, and I think there's a quote there from a, a Messianic uh, a prophecy specialist who, who basically said, the, the, the odds of someone fulfilling all of the prophecies, especially the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, are like, what's the probability? It's like a, something 100 billion billion or something. Um, and, and, uh, and Jesus fulfills all of them, right? Um, so, um, I mean, it's, it's evidence. Like, you, you have to deal with that. And then lastly, 
your personal testimony. And this is where you're able to look at somebody and say, hey, this is a book that, that I have read and that through reading it, through meditating on it, through memorizing it, and, and also ultimately through adhering to it, at, uh, through, through obeying what it is saying, um, my life is different. Um, I'm not the same person. I've experienced transformation because of, because of what this book is teaching um, about what is true and ultimately about, this, about who this book is testifying concerning, and that person is Christ. Okay? So somebody comes and, at, and runs up against you in the street and just says, hey, you know, why do you trust this? I mean, here are five really good points that you can immediately bring up and be like, well, the Bible pr- professes to be the word of God in, the, in, in right here. Um, in uh, what are the passages I'm trying to recall? It Second Timothy three sixteen, and what's the other one? S- yeah, Second Peter one twenty. So the Bible professes to be the word of God. Um, it was produced, you know, sixty six books uh, written over thousands of years by by multiple authors, and it has one unifying theme in the person of of Christ. Um, it's been preserved for us by uh, an embarrassment of riches in in regard to manuscripts far out out outweighing any other ancient manu- in, uh, ancient work of literature, like by far. Um, it prophesies about this one who was to come, and this man actually lived, and all of those prophecies um, that the odds of him fulfilling them all are astronomical, and yet he does. And then lastly, um, man, this, this book has um, radically changed my life. Um, that's a, I mean, I would just tell you, especially for the person who's just running, that you're running up against in the street or whatever, like that's a good answer, Okay. I mean, it's, is, it a, is it a totally complete one that's going to totally convince them of everything? No, but it's good, okay? So remember, the five Ps. Somebody asks you something about the reliability or the veracity of Scripture or why should you trust this or whatever, it, the first things that comes to your mind should be the five Ps, profession, production, preservation, prophecy, and personal testimony, all right? Um, so take that handout, commit it to memory. It's not that hard, all right, to, to remember five Ps, and then just put that in your kit. Um, obviously, tonight I'm going to give you a lot more information, especially about point number three. Um, but this is something that you can just hold on to, um, really, for the rest of your life. <clears throat> okay, so let's look at um, how was the Old Testament transmitted? Um, how did we get the Old Testament? And what I'm going to do is fly through. Again, you're going to have questions, so jot them down. I'm going to f- literally fly through a ton of history tonight to just show you, give you kind of like a chronological timeline of what happened and, and how do we know? So, <clears throat> firstly, around 430 B.C., which is uh, after the return of, uh, of, of the, uh, the Israels from exile in Babylon, um, under Ezra, so you guys, you guys know the book of Ezra, right? Um, actually, um, prior to it being split into two books, it was Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, <clears throat> and uh, Ezra uh, was this scribe, and, and he lived around 430 B.C., and he compiled... Under his, he started a scribal school and compiled the 22 books of the Hebrew Old Testament on uh, Aramaic clay tablet in, in, in Hebrew and Aramaic on clay tablets, papyrus, animal skin, metal, wax. These were just the um, uh, these were just the materials that they had to write on. Okay, um, <clears throat> between 400 and 200 BC. So for the next 200 years, that scribal school that Ezra. Um, established, which, which ended up being called the Sopharim, which is just a Hebrew word uh, for the, the wise ones, right? The, um, it, that's actually a, a Greek word, but um, the, the, the wise ones, they restored the oral and written tradition lost during the exile. So what had happened was um, Israel was a nation 
um, under, under David and then uh, Solomon, and then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was an idiot, and he basically caused the nation to split. And Rehoboam stayed in the south, and a guy named Jeroboam went to the north. And then for the next couple of hundred years, there was Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And they were two different nations, so the kingdom split, which weakened the country and allowed the Assyrians to come in and wipe, off, uh, wipe uh, Israel off of the map, which allowed the, the Babylonians to come in and wipe Judah off the map. And they carried them off, Israel to Assyria, and Judah to Babylon into exile. Okay, So now Israel didn't exist anymore. Then, 70 years, 70-ish years later, um, the people from Jerusalem um, under, uh, uh, under the Persians ended up coming back, and they uh, let them go and said, hey, um, you guys can... Uh, you guys can return back to Jerusalem, and so they did. Well, during that time, you have to understand, like, uh, a lot of uh, the manuscripts that they did have uh, scattered. They were dispersed. And so um, the the oral tradition, um, the the written manuscripts, all these things kind of, like, scattered. And so there was a a restoring work that was happening during this time under the scribal school that was established by... Um, Ezra to restore the the uh, um, what Ezra um, later was to uh, was to say. Hey, these are the twenty two twenty two canonical books of the Old Testament. And then when they were divided into the books in English, it ended up being thirty nine books. So it used to be like just the Book of Kings, and then later they divide them into First and Second Kings, and the Book of the Chronicler, and it was First and Second Chronicles. And it used to be Ezra Ezra and Nehemiah was one work, and they broke it down down in between Ezra and Nehemiah. Do you see what I'm saying? So that's why you'll hear the Hebrew Bible has 22 books, the English Bible has 39 Old Testament books, but really they're the same books. We're just divided them differently. Okay. So if you're reading Hebrew, it's 22. If you're reading English, it's 39. Between 300 BC and 8500, you had this Talmudic era, and and what they what this was was there's there's various Talmuds. There's uh, the two primary ones are the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud. And basically, under the Talmudic era, you had the production of synagogue rolls and private copies. The thing that was significant about this was that the synagogue rolls, the the scribal practices of producing a, um, a an accurate um, an accurate transmission of the 22 books of the Old Testament was um, meticulous, and, and that's being, like, uh, nice, okay? I mean, these guys would literally, um, uh, every jot and tittle copy it, and if they messed up anywhere, anywhere, they trashed it and started over, right? Can you imagine, can you imagine being a scribe and getting to the very end of the book and you misspell a word, Right? I mean, that entire role that you've been literally working for years on is done, and you've got to start back at square one, right? So um, you can, I mean, you can look into the scribal practices that, that, that happened with these people. I mean, it was, it was literally, like, crazy. I mean, it was good for us because we have a lot of confidence in what was actually transcribed. But then these private copies as well, which didn't necessarily have the same type of um, uh, standards but were considered reliable nevertheless. Then from 200 B.C. to the uh, break in the Common Era, um, the scribal school that, succeed, that succeeded the, uh, the Sofarim scribal school, they basically continued this textual tradition of, of passing along the 22 books 
of the Old Testament, plus all of the oral traditions which showed up in, in the Mishnah and the Gemara, and you can go look up all these words. What they, they basically are commentaries by rabbis, um, and then they're also um, the oral traditions are being spelled out as well. So you have the 22 books of the Old Testament, then you have commentaries, and then you have oral tradition that basically says, hey, Rabbi Ben Yosef says about this text, this commentary. All right, it's, it's like uh, going to the library and picking up a commentary um, by someone who's, who's written on, uh, on the Bible. So the Bible says this, and then this commentator says this about that passage. Um, so all of this stuff is being transcribed um, over time. 150 BC, the Septuagint, or and the reason it says LXX is because there's, there's this legend that 70 scholars in Alexandria, um, Africa, which is, was uh, northern Egypt, um, that, that the 22 books of the Old Testament plus the Apocrypha, um, which, which is that those books that were written in that intertestamental period time between 400 B.C. and the, a break in the Common Era, um, there was a ton of literature that was written during that time as well. And those books are considered, uh, not all of them, but some of them are, are grouped into a category and are considered the Apocrypha. Okay, so in, in Alexandria in northern Egypt, when these scribes or when these scholars trans, translated from Hebrew into Greek, the Septuagint, they translated all 22 books of the Hebrew Old Testament plus the Apocrypha, which is really important, especially for those of you who grew up Catholic or for those of you who are always wondering why is the Apocrypha at the end of the Catholic Bible, right? One, there's a handout back there that tells you why. It's called On the Apocrypha. Um, just, it, that's a, uh, an email that I sent to a guy in response to his question one time. But this is why the Septuagint was completed, and, and it combined those two into one work. That was in 150 B.C. From the break in the Common Era to, uh, to 8300, the Tanaim um, preserved the text through the Mishnah, the Tosefta, the Bariov, the Midrash. All of these, again, you have the 22 books of the Hebrew Old Testament, but then you had all of these other texts that were being produced from them that, that contained the text in them, and they would just say, hey, so-and-so says about this text, then it would write the text, and then comment about it. From 8500 to 950 were the, Mas- uh, the Masoretes. During this period, um, the Masoretes gave the Old Testament its final form. This is why we call it the Masoretic Text, or the MT. Um, this also is the birth of Old, text- Old-, Old Testament textual criticism, because prior to this, there was just one form. Okay, so now that we have the final form, then, then uh, we're able to um, take various texts produced from that and, and collate and compare them to one another. Okay? In 8900, the Old Testament text division and versification became standard. And that, that, what that basically means is now you could say, hey, turn to um, Joshua chapter 9, verse 1. All right? Prior to that, it was just, you'd have, just have to unroll the scroll to, the, to that point in Joshua where there's no, there's no way that you could determine, like, except to just know, hey, that's the section I'm talking about. Um, the Aleppo Codex. The Aleppo Codex um, is the oldest known Old Testament manuscript that we had prior to, and we'll get to this in a second, 1947-ish. I may be wrong, but we're going to find out. <clears throat> then in 1008, um, the Leningrad Codex um, was discovered. This is the um, oldest manuscript of the complete Old Testament and, and the, the Leningrad Codex is the basis for uh, the Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia. That, that and, I, and I'm not trying to say that to sound smart, that's just what it's called, okay? It's BHS, and the BHS is the Leningrad Codex. That is 
the document. It's the, it is the oldest known complete 22 books of the Old Hebrew Old Testament. And that is the manuscript that is the basis for your Bible. When you read the Old Testament, you are reading the Leningrad Codex in English. Does that make sense? Okay, that's why this is important. Um, because for the longest time, um, you know, I mean, that was, that was 80,008. Like, that was the oldest known manuscript that we had at the time. And so a lot of times people would be like, well, how do you, what are you comparing this against um, com- complete-wise? And we, the answer was, we don't know. Um, we just know that this is the oldest one that contains all 22 books of the Hebrew Old Testament. Then in 1947, I was right. Um, <laughs> I created this thing, so I hope I'm right. Um, but in 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. Okay, that's approximately a thousand texts. Um, that uh, most of them were of the Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, others of them were just uh, other ancient writings. But this is why this was so significant. Because prior to 1008, I mean, uh, or from 1008 to 1947, that's 900 and however many years, 30, whatever, five years, we, um, uh, the best answer we had to, to connecting 1008 to the actual historical period was, we don't know. We, we don't know that, that the, uh, the Leningrad Codex is an accurate document. We're going, out, we're going by faith here that, that this actually measures up with, with stuff um, that was written much closer to the actual historical event. And so what the Dead Sea Scrolls um, did, and this is why they were so significant, is it was the connector between um, the 1008 and um, back into the time before Christ. Literally like hundreds of years. Um, it, it gets us within a couple of hundred years of um, the 430 Ezra compilation of the Old Testament canon. Okay, so we have, Isaiah, we have the Isaiah scroll, which I've seen. It's actually really cool. Anybody been to Jerusalem before? Um, anybody been to the shrine of the book? All right, so if you have, or if you haven't gone to Israel, when you go to Jerusalem, and you should, then um, just <laughs> watch out for those rockets. <laughs> but <clears throat> when you go to Israel, go to the shrine of the book and definitely go see the Isaiah scroll. It's, it's the, um, it is a complete scroll of the book of Isaiah, and it literally, like, you step into this round, rotunda-type room, and the scroll starts over there, and it goes all the way around. Um, And you can, well, go read it. Um, But these scrolls date into uh, the time before Christ, and and when compared and collated against the Masoretic text, um, which is... um, uh, which is the Leningrad Codex, when compared against these, what they found was, man, um, it, it basically confirmed all the scribal habits over time that what we had in 1008 is, is almost exactly what was there um, in the time before Christ. And so it, conne- it connected over a millennia of history together and said, hey, actually what you have in the Old Testament is a faithful transmission of the text over time. All right? That's why the Dead Sea Scrolls are so significant. Okay, <clears throat> wish I could hang out there more, but we got to drive on. If you have questions, write them down. In 1979, Ketef Hanom was discovered. I just included this because I think it's really cool. Um, this is the oldest fragment of the Old Testament. It's, this is plate 14 of Ketef Hanom. Um, it's it's a, a, an iron plate, um, and that's it right there. Um, anybody know what that says? <laughs> I'm just joking. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, this is obviously um, ancient Hebrew, and um, I can't even read that. I don't know what it says either, unless, except somebody told me what it says. And it's, uh, it's the priestly blessing in Numbers chapter 6. Um, the Lord bless you and keep you. 
Um, the Lord cause his face to shine on you, right? Give you peace, which, which I thought was really cool. Like of, of all of the things that they can unearth and discover as the oldest Old Testament um, fragment of a manuscript known, uh, known to exist today, um, it just happens to be the priestly blessing in number six. I just thought that was cool. Okay, so that's just a brief overview on how we, how we got the Old Testament, um, the, the, the extreme significant significance of the Leningrad Codex, which is the basis for your Old Testament, and the Dead Sea Scrolls that connected the Leningrad Codex to um, uh, very close to um, the time that Ezra compiled the canon uh, of the 22 books of the Old Testament in 430 B.C. Okay, so now let's shift to New Testament textual transmission. How did we get the New Testament? Well, um, in AD 70, anybody know why 70 is significant? Um, I know our, our uh, deaf sign peep friends, are, their hands are on fire. <laughs> it's like, I'll try to slow down for you. <laughs> but uh, our, uh, in 70 AD, um, the, uh, the Romans came in and, and basically totally destroyed uh, Jerusalem. And then they uh, pushed this band of Jewish rebels out to the Dead Sea to this fortress called Masada that Herod the Great built. And, uh, and they killed all those people too. They basically just put down this rebellion. But the reason it's significant is because in destroying Jerusalem, they also burned the temple to the ground, right? So if you go to Jerusalem today, you can go to the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall, as some people call it. And that is the Western Wall that, that existed um, uh, uh, during the time of Jesus, the one that Herod the Great built, all right? And it was burned to the ground in 70 AD. It hasn't, nobody's even tried to restore it. Um, since then. So, long time ago. So, most of the New Testament, minus Revelation, and some people would argue John as well, um, was written um, uh, prior to 70 AD um, in uncial letters using papyrus and, and parchment. Okay, these are, uh, papyrus is like this, uh, uh, it's like this reed that grows in, in the Nile. It looks like a bamboo shoot, right? And you can peel down these things off of the reed and then lay them, lay them down next to each other. Um, parallel to one another, and then they would take other uh, papyrus reeds and place them perpendicular to them um, and, and layer them like that, then take this chalky substance and press them down to create like uh, a paper-type substance. It's real brittle, right? But it's kind of poor man's paper. You could just create it. Um, it, was, it was very common, commonly used in the ancient world. Parchment is, um, is, is uh, parchment or vellum is animal skin, okay? So you, you, in order to get parchment, you literally had to like kill some animals, which was expensive. And to get enough parchment, you had to kill quite a few animals um, uh, to, to actually create a scroll out of this. And so um, parchment, while much more durable, was less frequently used because it was so expensive. Okay? So a lot of our, um, a lot of our oldest um, manuscripts are papyrus because the early church, it's not like the early church was bu- a bunch of rich people rolling in dough, creating a bunch of parchment um, New Testament manuscripts, right? A lot of, the, a lot of times the church was, was recreating these documents um, because they were suppressed, they were under persecution, and so uh, they were taking all the materials that they, that they had at, at hand and just creating um, what they could. Um, although we do get parchment, and the parchment manuscripts that we do have um, are in much better shape, obviously, than the papyrus ones that we have. So <clears throat> that's just a slide telling you what I just told you. Um, uncials are all capital letters. So when you look at um, when you look at the oldest manuscripts that we have, and they're all written, the, all the oldest ones are written in uncials. Um, 
It, it looks like someone, um, it's, it's like you hit all caps on your computer and type an email to somebody, and you, all, all of the letters are in capital letters, and you don't put any spaces between your words. Um, th- that's what it would be like um, trying to read this continuous script, scriptio continuum, um, or uh, without any word breaks or punctuation. Um, the only thing they abbreviated, well, not the only thing because there's ligatures, but uh, ligatures are like uh, abbreviations for words because they ran out of space. Um, but the, uh, typically the, the abbreviation that they would have um, were the nomina sacra. It's the sacred name. So they would come to father, and instead of spelling out patros, right, which is the Greek word for father, they would just do like uh, uh, um, P-T-S, right, or, or uh, with a line above it to show, hey, this is the name of God. A palimpsest, which is some of this, this is this is an example of some of the manuscripts that we have, is used parchment. It's a used parchment manuscript, so it's like somebody wrote on parchment um, uh, biblical text, and then and then uh, would pass that along to someone else. It would get passed along. We don't know why, but then uh, the next person would scrape off that text off of the animal skin because it was so durable, and then used that same parchment for something else, like a bill of sale or, a, or another letter to somebody else. So it's their writing, but then underneath that, the text that's been scraped off is biblical text. Um, it's, it's the text of the New Testament. This is an example of one. So you can see um, here that the darker ink um, that's bolder is the text that you can see with the naked eye, and then this is a UV shot of Gregory Island 1179. It's uh, um, uh, Definitely a um, later manuscript. But you can see that there is also faded text underneath the bold text. That's the text that you can't see with the naked eye. Or if you can, it's really faint. Okay? And that is the biblical, that's the text of the New Testament. Okay? Um, there are about 50 palimpsests um, that we have in existence that we know of today. There's definitely more, we just haven't found them yet. All right? Around 90. A.D. The, um, were the writings of the church fathers. That's, that's Clement, Ignatius, Polycarp, and a bunch of other dudes. Um, and basically, the reason that these guys are significant is because um, these guys uh, were not known for their brevity. <laughs> All right? If you look at church father volumes, I mean, it's massive amounts of text that these guys wrote. And the reason it's significant is because these guys would comment extensively on the text of the New Testament. Well, um, in order for them to comment on the text of the New Testament, they had to write the text of the New Testament in, in a paragraph form and then um, stop where they wanted to comment and then comment underneath it, right? So we have the text of the New Testament preserved in the church father quotations. There are millions of these, millions of church father quotations that we have in existence today. In fact, it's been said, um, I've never tried to do this, but I've heard um, other, peop- other reputable people who know this to be true, is that you, you can basically reproduce the New Testament multiple times over just using the quotations from the church fathers. So if we didn't have any other uh, actual manuscript of the, of the New Testament, we could just use church father quotations alone and recreate the New Testament multiple times over. Crazy, right? Truly, we have an embarrassment of riches. It's, it's ridiculous. Around 100 of the turn of the century, the codex form of the book was invented. Um, so you had the scroll, um, which you would roll up and, t- and it looks like a scroll. And then you had a book. So this is a book right here. Can I use your book? Thanks. So this is a book. This is a codex. A codex just, just means that it has a front page and a back page. All right? So it's binded together with some money. Yeah, there you go. It's a $2 bill. I'm lucky. <clears throat> um, 
So that's a codex. It's just, hey, it has a front and a back page that's bound together. And, and frankly, I, um, you can make a really good case that the early church invented the codex form of the book because they didn't have, they didn't have the money to, um, uh, to produce a scroll that was that long. They needed, they needed to use the front and the back to preserve space so that they could create more manuscripts based on the resources that they had. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, the people you need to thank for all the books you buy for school, right? Um, it's the early church, right? So around the turn of the century, that took place. <clears throat> Between 50 and 140, and the reason I put this here is because we don't know exactly when it's written, although um, some of the scholarship that's come out recently has, has suggested a much earlier um, uh, writing of the Didache. And the Didache is basically like the way I tell it to people in, in really kind of vulgar language is, um, this is just a handbook for the early Christian church. It basically just says, hey, when you baptize, baptize people like this. When you take the Eucharist, take it like this. When you do this, do it like this. Um, it's, it's a very early um, uh, document that we have. Um, and and when, when measured against Scripture is, is verifying what we do have. Then around 8100 is the oldest known manuscript that we, that we have. It's called P52. What do you think the P stands for? So remember, it's primarily written on two different types of material. One of them is vellum. The other one is, yep, is papyrus. All right. Remember, it's that reed that they put and press down. Right. So the oldest known manuscript we have, and we would expect to be, we would expect it to be a papyrus fragment, because that's what the early church wrote on. Um, is P fifty two. All right. This is it right here. It's about, it's about the uh, size of your palm. Okay. Um, back in the uh, mid to late 30s, a guy was rummaging around in the John Ryland's um, uh, library in, in England and ran across this, sent it off to um, the leading uh, papyrologists at the time. And all, uh, one of them wrote back and said, hey, I wouldn't date this um, any, any later than um, 125. Another one said, I wouldn't date it any, any uh, later than uh, 110, 115. Another guy said, I would not, it may even date into the first century, Right. And so um, a lot of scholars will tell you, hey, 125 is a, um, uh, is a good date for this, uh, for this fragment. But um, the, the thing that's interesting about this fragment, too, is um, this is John chapter 18, verses 37 and 38, all right? Um, so, um, and, and you can tell that all of them, you can tell that they're all written in, in, uh, in uncial letters. All of them are capital letters, and you, you don't see any kind of uh, word break either. So it's, it's, it's that scriptio continua. Um, that it's written in continuous script. And so the, the thing that's significant about this, though, is that for a long time, because John, the, the Gospel of John, has such a high Christology. I mean, the book of John starts out what, saying what? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, right? And it goes on. I mean, it, and it's, I mean it's high Christology throughout the entire book. And so a lot of uh, liberal scholars were saying, hey, there's no way... That, that a book with such a high Christology could be, could be dated um, any earlier than like the 3rd or 4th century. And so for a long time, um, Johannine scholarship was saying, hey, um, there's, there's no way that John is, is actually written by John. Um, and then in the, in the late 30s, um, they find P52 and they date it to the turn of the century, right? The turn of the 1st century. So, which, which basically comes to this point, and I would tell you is, is that a mentor of mine said, hey, Nate, um, an, an ounce of evidence is worth a, a pound of presumption, right? Here you have all these guys presuming something because in their mind, their presupposition is this cannot be original because it's such high Christology, and yet 
the very oldest fragment of um, the old, very oldest manuscript that we have is from the Gospel of John, and it's most it's most certainly a copy of a copy of probably a copy, and it dates to the turn of the first century, and so literally, like this fragment right here sent like tons of of liberal scholarship to the flames, right? Because it's like it can't be any it can't be any you know earlier than the third or fourth century, and then evidence shows up that's like, no, clearly it is. And, and I'm telling you, I mean, people had to reframe the way that they thought about the Gospel of John and actually place it where it belongs, which is um, as an actual historical document alongside the Synoptic Gospels. 8120 to 130 was the formation of the Alexandrian and Western text types. Okay, now, I'm about to get technical, as if I already haven't been, but I'm about to get more technical and, and hopefully this will make sense because I'm going to try to piece it together like a family tree, okay? You have to understand when the autographer was written, and the autographer is, is just the, when, when Paul or Matthew or Luke or the writers of the New Testament actually sat down and penned um, these documents, right? That is the original. And so we don't have the originals. We have copies of the original. And so what you need to think of is the original was here, and then a copy went here, and a copy went here. And then a copy went here, and a copy went here. And a copy went here, and a copy went here. And it, and it fans out like a tree. Do, do, are you catching my imagery? Like a family tree. Um, that's a good way of thinking about it. Well, the Alexandrian text type um, is, is um, the most reliable text type that we have. And the Alexandrian text type, as known by its name, um, came out of a scribal school that existed in Alexandria, Egypt, in northern Egypt. That's because... During the uh, during the the Christian persecu- the uh, persecution of the Christian Church, very early on, a lot of um, you know you had you had Jerusalem, you had Antioch, and then you had a lot of Christians that went down and fled the persecution um, by the Jews, and then also by the Romans. They fled down into northern Egypt, into Alexandria, and they settled there. Okay, so we have a lot of, of New Testament manuscripts that are being produced out of a scribal school because that's where one of these strong Christ, Christian communities fled to during the persecution. So that's one part of the family tree. All right. The other one was, if you know anything about the New Testament, um, in, in the Western text type, where do you think the Western text type uh, originated out of? In the West, and the capital of the West in the Christian church is Rome. Okay? So you have Paul's letter to the Romans. You have, obviously, you have an established Christian um, church in Rome very early on. And then out of Rome, you have the, uh, the tradition of the Western text type. Again, another part of this family tree that's going out. So you have the autographer, you have the original, and then copies moved to Alexandria and then are copied out of Alexandria. And then you have copies that moved to Rome and then are copied out of Rome. You tracking with me? So... The Alexandrian texts are characterized by uh, careful copying and shorter, more difficult readings. Um, typically, when we rate things and say, hey, this has an A rating or a B rating, C, D, and on down, then Alexandrian texts typically get the more highly probable that this is original reading because they're shorter, because they're more difficult. Um, basically, the Western text um, that, that we have is characterized by a lot of liberty among the scribes. So, for example... Somebody, let's say the original text says the cow jumped over the moon, right? Then the Alexandrian, they're going to run fleet Alexandrian and be like, hey guys, the cow jumped over the moon. And they're going to be like, okay, yeah, the cow jumped over the moon. And they're going to copy it fairly woodenly, all right? Um, as, as, as accurately as they can from the original. 
somebody else is going to take it to Rome, and the Western text, uh, the Western scribes are going to translate it and be like, actually, <clears throat> I'm going to spice this up a little bit. I'm going to say, <clears throat> the sacred bovine leaped over the celestial ball, you know, and you're going to be like, wait, wait a second. You're going to compare that with the cow jumped over the moon, and you're going to be like, Okay, they basically say the same thing, just in different words, but definitely the Western scribe, scribal schools are taking more liberty to add words, add adjectives, add, add prepositional phrases that are going to bring, bring the text out. Um, they're, not, they're not fundamentally changing the text, so it's still the cow jumping over the moon. They're just saying it in more robust language. Okay, And I'm telling you, when you look at especially Codex Bezai, which is uh, 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 Codex D, um, I mean, they're literally, you look at it and you're like, I mean, I guess, <laughs> what is that? You know, um, it's the foremost Western text and, and it's definitely um, known for its uh, scribal liberty is probably, yeah, it's the best way to say it. Okay. So when you're looking, so ranking them, we would probably put Alexandrian text type as, as um, the best that we have in, in getting back to the original when it comes to the Western text, we would give that a poor rating. So if you have a witness from an Alexandrian text type and a witness from a Western one, and the Alexandrian text type reads a certain way and the Western reads another way, typically what you're going to do, this is called external evidence. Typically what you're going to do is to say, hey, the Alexandrian reading is shorter, it's more difficult, and probably is more, is more close, closely aligned to what was originally written. Do you see why? It's easier to explain how somebody could say the sacred bovine leaped over the celestial ball than it is to say, no, probably what was original is somebody said the cow jumped over the moon. Are you tracking with me on that? Does that make sense? Um, if it doesn't, let's talk about it during the Q&A. All right, I don't know what else to tell you. <laughs> then from 200 to 250, you had the formation of the Caesarean text type. What happened here is, is uh, uh, most likely this guy named uh, Origen, who was an early church father, was um, a uh, church leader in Alexandria and was booted out for some, for some interesting ideas that he had, um, and uh, not the least of which was some literal interpretations of some texts that were obviously uh, figurative. But um, he goes and he moves to Caesarea and begins a scribal school in Caesarea. And the, the Caesarean text type is known, as, is known by its blending of the Alexandrian text type and the Western text type. So you had a family over here and a family over here. And now you've got a family that blends those two families. And they're having babies. You know what I'm saying? So it's producing copies out of the Caesarean text type. I actually was able to photograph one of the manuscripts that fits in this family, it's, it's uh, uh, um, manuscript 1709, um, photographed it in uh, Tirana, Albania back in 2007. I'll talk more about that in a minute. Between 300 and 330, you had the formation of the Byzantine text type, and this is by far um, uh, the most abundant type of manuscript that we have. It's, it's known as the majority text. Um, it was widely distributed. So again, the, the Byzantine text type, um, as its name implies, um, was a scribal school that began to copy a family of manuscripts out of Byzantium, okay, which later became known as Constantinople, um, which, which uh, um, I'm sorry, it was Constantinople and then Byzantium and then it was Istanbul. Um, we'll get to that in a second as well. But basically, um, this text was uh, created f- almost solely to be read out loud in a church setting because most people 
couldn't typically read. So it's not like you've got people who are opening up these scrolls and reading them for their daily edification, right? They're going to a mass, they're going to a church service, and a priest is reading, um, is reading these lectionaries, is reading the Byzantine text type um, for the edification of the people. So when you, it's, it's not as crazy as the Western text type, but it's not as wooden as the Alexandrian one. It's smoothed out with, with some words so that, it can, so that it sounds better when you read it, Okay. Um, smoother, longer readings, um, it's meant to be read out loud. Um, in 83.13, so again, um, at this point, let's go back. Yeah, so now we have all four text types. By, three, by the year 330, we have four different centers that are producing uh, copies of the New Testament out of those families, and they're branching out. Are you tracking with me? So now the role of textual criticism today is, is to take those manuscripts um, place them back into their families, determine based on where they came from, based on um, what we know about those scribal schools, based on what we know about the, uh, the, way, the scribal habits and the way they would um, increase readings is to put those back and then say, okay, we have an Alexandrian text reading, we have a Western one, and we have a Caesarean one. Which one of them is most closely aligned to the original? Right? That is the discipline of textual criticism. Um, and, and it's our job, um, not mine specifically, but of professional text, textual critics that, that uh, make these decisions in, community, um, in communities to make a decision based on the reading to say, hey, this is um, what we believe is most closely aligned with the original text. All right. In 313, Constantine recognized Christianity. He ordered 50 manuscripts to be professionally copied including uh, Codices Sinaiticus, which is um, one of the oldest complete New Testament Greek manuscripts, and also Vaticanus. Um, where do you think they found Sinaiticus? Mount Sinai, right, good. Um, where do you think Vaticanus is? In the Vatican, <laughs> that's right, good. All right, so <clears throat> um, this is a picture of um, Codex Sinaiticus. You can, you can tell from there, it's written in columns. You, you can tell it's uncial letters, um, all caps, um, there's, there's no uh, word divisions, a scriptio continua. And then I'll, I'll uh, um, zoom in a little bit so you can see. Um, this is uh, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. Um, you can tell there, obviously, it's easy to read. Um, this is a professional scribe who's doing this. Um, you can tell where some of the uh, nomina sacra are. Actually, the very last word um, uh, is... Uh, uh, an abbreviation for the Holy Spirit. All right? Pretty cool, right? Here's another uh, picture from uh, Codex Sinaiticus. This is John chapter 1, verse 1. Um, you can tell there, in RK, um, ein ha lagos, in the beginning was the word, um, kai ha lagos, right? And the word was, uh, prostanthaon, was with God, and the word was God. There's John 1, 1 right there, right? From 1,700 years ago. Um, here's a lectionary, and the lectionary basically is, um, is, is the Greek underneath it. This is the beginning of, of, uh, of Romans. Paulos, doulos, um, Jesu Christu, um, Kletos, apostolos. Uh, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus called as an apostle, right? It's the beginning of Romans. And then above the Greek text, is the Latin text so that if the priest didn't know Greek, he could read Latin, right? This is a lectionary. He would read it um, in, uh, in Mass. 
8383, Jerome uh, revises the old Latin version of the four gospels and later calls it the Vulgate. Vulgate uh, is just a, a Latin term that just means vulgar ter- uh, tongue. It's the common language. Um, the reason that's is so important is because Jerome, you remember uh, the Septuagint included the Apocrypha. Well, when Jerome took um, the old Latin version of the four gospels and, and created the Vulgate and then later expanded it into all 66 books of the Bible, he omitted the Apocrypha because in his mind, he was like, hey, this was never part of the 22 books of the Old Testament to begin with. All you, all you guys down in Alexandria decided to include it, but you never had any good reason to. Um, when Ezra compiled the 22 books of the Old Testament, the Apocrypha didn't exist. And what we know f- um, from the first century uh, Jewish tradition is that the canon was closed with Ezra. So anything written after Ezra obviously would not be canonical. And so Jerome rejected the Apocrypha, um, and so the, uh, made a distinction between what he called proto-canonical, which is the 66 books of the, of the Bible, versus the uh, deuterocanonical, the second canon, which was the Apocrypha. So he said these are important, but they're not on the same basis as the books that we, that we look to to give us um, our basis for doctrine, these authoritative books. In 8800, uh, minuscule letters replace the uncial letters in standard Greek writing. So all of the all caps letters now, <laughs> go back to your computer, take the all caps off and start putting word divisions between your words, right? So now you're saying, um, hey, what's up, man? How's it going? Hope, hope you had a good day today. And instead of that being all in all caps and all with no word divisions, now it looks like common text that you would read an email from a guy, unless it's one of those guys that writes in all caps and you feel like he's screaming at you all the time, you know? Um, so it's, it's just regular writing like you and I write today. Um, that's, that's why, like when I looked at that palimpsest a minute ago, I said this is definitely later because the palimpsest had word divisions and it also was written in minuscule letters. So that immediately tipped me off that it was like, hey, this, la- this manuscript is later than 800 because 8800 was around the time that that, that standard writing shifted from uncials to minuscules. That's one of the ways that we date these manuscripts, one of the many. It's not the only way. In 81400, paper replaced parchment as the primary material for writing. And then in 81440, literally probably one of the most significant events in human history occurred, and that was Johann Gutenberg invented the printing press. Now, something that took forever to copy and was really expensive was now able to be mass-produced to common people, which, as you can probably imagine, resulted in a pretty massive um, shift in culture, namely the Renaissance, the Reformation, right? A lot of other things um, that, that uh, um, a, a massive rise in literacy. Um, <clears throat> 81453, this is a significant couple of decades. Um, the Muslims invaded and conquered Byzantium. So it was Constantinople, and then it was Byzant- later renamed uh, Byzantium. Um, and then when the Muslims took it over, um, they renamed it um, Istanbul, which it still is today. Um, the Muslims invaded and con- conquered Byzantium, renaming it, it, it Istanbul. During the invasion, what happened was um, the Byzantine text type was largely housed in, uh, in Byzantium. And so all of these Greek Orthodox priests saw the Muslims coming, and the Muslims have this penchant for burning religious books that are not Muslim. And so um, they gathered up these manuscripts, and they took off to Eastern Europe. And they fled like through Turkey, 
um, through Greece, up through Albania, um, through Serbia, through all, all of the Eastern Europe, and then, and then ultimately made their way to Western Europe, to Paris, um, to, to Germany, to England, um, with these manuscripts. And, and as, these scri- as these priests were fleeing with these manuscripts, literally, with the manuscripts in their hands, they would stop off at various places in Europe that would house them, and then they would just become the local priest of that European town. So now you have Byzantine, the Byzantine text type scattered all throughout Europe, right? Um, and prior to this, Europe didn't really have any kind of like uh, a, a Greek um, manuscript tradition. Um, in that last line of, of the text there, these texts incited the Catholic Reformation because it gave German guys like Martin Luther um, access to the text. He had access to the New Testament now. It birthed the Renaissance, it renewed interest in intellect and arts all across Europe. Um, five years later, ancient Greek was offered for the first time as a course in, in a university at the University of Paris, right? Um, so actually, uh, the, the uh, Muslim conquest of Byzantium ended up being really good for Europe. AD 15, 16, a guy named uh, Desiderius Erasmus. Um, still, still uh, if I have a third son, I'm still thinking about naming him Desiderius. That's just an awesome name, right? <clears throat> What's your name, Desiderius? You know, that just sounds cool. It's kind of like uh, the gladiator, you know, Maximus. Um, yeah, you had a strong name, Desiderius. Anyway, <clears throat> I digress. Erasmus published the first Greek New Testament Latin diglot. That means um, he had uh, Greek and then um, underneath it Latin. He published this as a New Testament, um, primarily from a late, uh, a, a handful, like five or six late Byzantine manuscripts um, altogether, Erasmus's Greek New Testament went through five editions and was later called the, T, uh, the Textus Receptus. Right? The Textus Receptus became known, as, um, it became known as the text that when King James um, uh, commissioned uh, his translation into the English Bible in 1611, um, he used um, Erasmus's Greek Latin edition. He used the Textus Receptus. So when you, you, when you run across these people who are the King James only people of the Bible, right? And, and they're like, hey, um, the 1611 King James Version is the only faithful transcription of the Word of God. I mean, frankly, you're running across someone who just doesn't know anything about the history of textual transmission. They're ignoring the Alexandrian text type. They're ignoring the Western text type. They're ignoring the Caesarean text type. And really, they're largely ignoring the majority text, which is the Byzantine text type. They're, they're just going off of Erasmus, what Erasmus had at the time, which was like five to six late Byzantine manuscripts. And, and all he was able to do was collate those. He was leaving out the wealth of, of uh, information that we have available to us today, which is why now, instead of using the Textus Receptus, we use a critical text. Um, they just came out with the latest one a couple of years ago, the Nestle Allend 28th edition. In 1908, a guy named Casper Rene Gregory began to assign official numbers to manuscripts so that we could catalog and know exactly what we had. Um, This was a system that was further developed by Kurt Allend, and later they become known as the Gregory Allend numbers, or a GA number. So now there's a book. It's called the Kurzgefasteliste. It's just a German term that just means the abridged list. And it's a catalog of all known Greek New Testament manuscripts that, that, that are in existence today. And they're numbered by their Gregory Allen number. So when we discover a manuscript, it goes through Münster in Germany, and, and the Institute for uh, New Testament Studies in Münster assigns a Gregory Allen number to a new discovery, 
And then that, that manuscript is then um, collated into the rest of the manuscripts that we have and is added to um, the critical text so that we can now say, okay, here's another text of the reading of the Gospel of John. So we're going to add it to the Alexandrian, Caesarean, Western, Byzantine text types so that when we're making decisions about which um, uh, reading to go with, now we have uh, an addition to, um, we have a, an embarrassment, we have a wealth of information. In 1994, the second edition of the K-Lista was published, this book I just talked about. And then by 2007, this has since grown because that was eight years ago. But in 2007, 5,752 um, extant, um, or, which means not destroyed, it, it exists. Um, Greek New Testament manuscripts, that's 118 papyri, 318 uncials, 2,880 minuscules, 2,436 lectionaries. Um, that, that we know about. That's, that number has since grown. It's, it's, I think it's over 6,000 by this point. So, New Testament witnesses. Of the Greek manuscripts, we have 5,700 plus, and I think by now it's 6,000 plus. Of the Latin manuscripts, this is, these are Latin versions that are translated from Greek. We have 10,000 plus of those. Other ancient versions, which is like Syriac, Gothic, Old Church Slavonic, right? It's just weird languages that um, existed back in the day. Of those versions, we have ten to 15,000. Of the church father quotations, we have a million. We have a million, uh, over a million church father quotations um, of, uh, uh, of, of New Testament text that are embedded in these commentaries that the church fathers wrote compared to other ancient documents. Um, and you've got this list under preservation on your, on your list, on your document there. Um, Livy, coming in, um, so four centuries after he lived, um, he's got 27 surviving. Great. Good for you, Tacitus, right? Um, eight centuries after he lived, he has three remaining. Suetonius, eight centuries after he lived, 200 plus. It's pretty strong, Suetonius. Good job. Thucydides, um, what, 500 years, 400 years after he lived, he has 20 of them surviving. Herodotus, um, four to 500 years after he lived, he has 75 surviving, right? So, in, comparing, in comparison to the, to the other ancient documents, what we have is we have an embarrassment of riches that go not between a couple of hundred years of the actual historical event, but within 60 or so years of the actual historical event. And of that, we have thousands of them, right? Not 20 or 30 of them. We have thousands of them. So when someone says, well, how do you know that you have the original text? Well, because... When, when somebody, when, when the cow jumped over the moon was written and the Alexandrian text type translated or, uh, or uh, copied it as the cow jumped over the moon, and the Western text translated or uh, tran, uh, uh, copied it as the sacred bovine leaped over the celestial ball, well, we st- it's not like we don't still have the original. It's just the original plus some. Do you see what I'm saying? So it's not like, it's not like, it's, uh, it's not like in one of the manuscripts, Jesus died on a cross and in another manuscript, Frank went to the beach, right? Jesus dies in the, on the cross in both manuscripts. Um, it, it, it's, it's just that one of the manuscripts, because of scribal liberty or smoothing out the reading or whatever, has added to what was originally there. And so the, the discipline of textual criticism is not to try to figure out, well, we lost some of the original. No, we have the original. The original is embedded in, in the Bible that you read. It's just that we have original with some fat that we need to trim off. Are you tracking with me? Right? So anybody that says that we don't have the original just doesn't understand this stuff. They haven't done their homework. 
Okay? Um, it's just the discipline of textual criticism is to try to weed out the stuff that the, the, the uh, um, emendation, the, the, uh, the additions that the scribes have, have made over the years to be like, ah, no, this is clearly an addition that happened later. So what about translations? Based on the critical additions, the BHS, which is, uh, you guys remember what the Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia is based off of, is the Leningrad Codex, right? So we have the Leningrad Codex, and then we also have uh, the United Bible Society's 4th edition, and then, like I said, the Nestle Allen 28th edition. Um, the BHS is not a critical text. It does have an apparatus in the, in the bottom that tells you what other texts say about it, but the UBS and the Nestle Island is a critical text. That means that they have taken um, multiple manuscripts, witnesses about the various um, books in the New Testament. They've collated those side by side, and then where those uh, manuscripts differ from one another a translation committee has weighed the internal and external evidence based on those rankings of, of Alexandrian text type and also um, uh, scribal habits that we know about and have made a critical call, an educated call, to say, we believe that the original text said this. And then when the English committee that translates it from Greek into English, they are translating that critical edition so that the book you have that you read out of, every, um, you know, hopefully every day, um, is based on that critical edition. They're typically done in committees, so nobody's just sitting around doing this by themselves, right? These are well-learned um, you know, scholars who are no way more than I do and any of us, probably all of us put together, um, and, and uh, they are doing this um, together in a committee. They're doing it, Les Watermark likes to say, in community, <laughs> right? That's good. <clears throat> then thirdly, um, they're translated for various audience and purposes. So typically when somebody says, hey, this book's been translated so many times, well, if you take, if you take a, a 1611 King James Bible that was based on Erasmus's Texas Receptus and you compare it with the message, which is what Eugene Peterson bases his translation off of, and he uses the, he uses the BHS in the Nestle Island uh, 28th edition, um, then, yeah, of course, like, uh, th- they're going to read totally differently because King James was writing to an English audience back in 1611, and, and Peterson is translating for a modern audience in, in the modern age. They both basically say the same thing, but they're going to use different words to communicate the same general um, uh, uh, truth that is, uh, there for, um, that is there out of the text. Right? So, so the translation has to do with style, not reliability. Right? That, that's why if you're looking for a really wooden translation, then I would, I would look for the New American Standard Bible, I would look at the New English translation. I'll look at the English Standard Version, the ESV. Um, but if you're looking to, to get the Scripture into somebody's hands that's not going to be bogged down by a wooden, transla- an English, wooden English translation, then give them the New Living Translation. Give them the message, right? Because one of them is a, one of them is a very wooden translation from the, from the critical Greek text and the, Bibli- uh, and the Leningrad Codex. The other one is he's going to take a paragraph and say, I'm going to paraphrase this, into modern language, so the guy on the street that's never read the Bible can actually read it, right? Um, nobody's trying to, like, pull the wool over anybody's eyes, right? Um, it just has to do with style. Was the text corrupted? And i got to fly because we're running out of time. <laughs> um, anybody feel like they're standing in front of a water hot fire hydrant yet? I am. Um, so there's 140,000 words in the Greek New Testament. This is really important, so I am going to spend a few minutes on this. There are at least 400,000 variants in the Greek New Testament, right? 
And so initially, somebody's going to look at that and be like, wait a second, there's only 140,000 words in the Great New Testament, and, and there's almost four times that differences between those 140,000 words? That seems like there's a lot of differences in um, the Greek New Testament, which in, inevitably people will just uh, um, assume that, well, then the text has been corrupted. And, and the, my answer to that is yes, it has. And also, no, it hasn't. All right? If you understand what corruption is, if, if what you mean by corruption is that somebody went in there and in a wily kind of way tried to like change the message and now all of a sudden Jesus is God instead of just a, instead of just a good prophet, right? Then, then I would say we, we have no evidence for that, right? There is no evidence um, whatsoever in the, tra- in the uh, transmission of the New Testament that would say that any kind of core central Christian doctrine has shifted over time. What we have from the very earliest manuscripts we have all the way to the latest, right before the printing press was invented, is a faithful transcription of Orthodox Christian doctrine, right? Um, now, what, if you mean by, the, by corruption that, um, like we said, scribes were adding words to smooth out sentences so they could be read in public, then yeah, the text is corrupted. That's why we need, in order to get back to the original, we need to take what we have and, and attempt as best we can to skim off the fat. Here's the, the other reason that we have 400,000 textual variants um, uh, o- among a document that only contains 140,000 words. We have so many manuscripts. It's crazy. I mean, if we only had three manuscripts, we would only have like a, a handful of variants. Do you see what I'm saying? But you add, you add thousands and thousands and thousands of manuscripts, and all of a sudden your variants are going to build on each other because you have so many manuscripts. So it's not, the more manuscripts you have, it's not that you're moving further away from the text. You're actually getting closer to it because now you have more material to compare, it, uh, to compare itself against and make more educated decisions about what part is the fat and what part is not. I mean, I, I would say that we're, we are getting extremely close to the autographer based on the amount of manuscript evidence that we have, not the other way around, which is commonly held. 99% of textual variants, they don't make any difference at all, such as spelling differences, minor scribal errors, um, which like hypography, hypography is, is uh, um, where you uh, skip a line. Um, dittography is where you uh, write the same word twice, just common scribal errors um, that would happen. We, we do the same thing in English. Um, where you're typing and you end up typing the same word twice and then spelling and grammar check goes, bing, you know, you messed up um, and then you have to go and correct it, right? Approximately one quarter of 1% could viably affect the meaning of the text, but no essential truth is impacted by any variant at all. Some examples of this are Revelation chapter 13, verse 18, where it says, um, he who has ears, let him hear, um, or he who has wisdom, let him hear. Um, the number of the beast is this. What is it? 666. Did you know the oldest and most reliable manuscript of Revelation does not say 666? It says what? 616, right? So 666 is like the number of the beast, and 616 is like his neighbor down the street, right? So, so we, don't really know, we don't really know which one it is, but we do know, and here, here's the point, right? We know it's not like 584, right? So if you're saying, well, which one is it? Well, it's one of those two. Right? It's either 666 or it's 616. But we cannot say for sure, for certain, that the number of the beast is 666 because we don't know that. But we know that it's one or the other. Right? 
So that, that's a viable example that would actually affect the meaning of the text. Another one is John 7:53 to 8:11. This is, in my opinion, an obvious um, interpolation. I think a scribe added this much later um, into John, um, but this is basically um, the pericope adultery. It's the pericope, or it's the section where the adulterous woman is caught in adultery, and Jesus draws in the sand and then says, "You, uh, those of you who have not sinned, cast the first stone." Right? That is almost certainly not in John's original gospel. And so we have to acknowledge that and say, hey, um, that's just, um, when it comes to, hey, is this uh, authoritative? Is it part of the original um, manuscript of, or autographa of John? We would have to say with some certainty, no, it wasn't. Um, that doesn't mean it's not true. I think it could be historical, but I don't think it's authoritative. Is the text corrupted? Um, this, this quotation, essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. So of all the variants that are out there, none of them affect any core Christian doctrine at all. They didn't even come close to it. Guess who said this? Anybody want to venture a guess? You guys ever heard of Bart Ehrman? Right? The guy that wrote Misquoting Jesus. Um, he's a textual critic. He's also an, ag- uh, an agnostic um, he's actually debating a buddy of mine tomorrow night um, at Collin College up in Frisco, if you guys want to go to it. He wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus, and in the appendix of Misquoting Jesus, he confesses um, of all of the textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament, no, no essential Christian belief is affected by this. So here's, here's the point. Is the text corrupted? Two attitudes to avoid absolute certainty. So we cannot say, is the text corrupted? No, not at all. We have to acknowledge, yes, it is in some part. If by corruption, what you mean is that we have the autographer plus some fat that we need to trim off. But we also need to avoid total despair. So we can't also say that we don't have the autographer. We don't have the original because we do. So you can't say, well, there's a variant. There's a difference. We don't know what to do. Ah, the whole, the whole thing is kaput. Don't do that because evidence doesn't point us to that either. Right? We, we can have... Um, and actually an enormous amount of confidence in the text, but we cannot have absolute certainty in all particulars. What we can have absolute certainty about is the doctrine that has been faithfully transcribed over 2,000 years so that we can say with confidence that what was intended to be preserved from what they wrote then is what you have now. Two questions to answer. How certain are you about the wording of the New Testament? Right? And, and, and we would say we're extremely certain um, about the autographer. There are a handful, more than a handful, but there are places where we just have to say, we don't know, and this is our best guess. Um, What issues are at stake? Well, the third deal that I told you I would talk about, and that is, did did the Council of Nicaea deify Jesus? Well, let's look, because here are some witnesses that are from manuscripts that predate the Council of Nicaea. These are all um, come from manuscripts that um, are, that we still have that date to prior to the Council of Nicaea. John chapter 1, verse 1, the Word was God. We've got manuscript evidence that says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We have one that goes back well into the second century, right? Um, John chapter 20, verse 28, where Thomas says, My Lord and my God, from the, from the same uh, uh, John manuscript in the second century. Romans chapter 9, verse 5, says the Messiah, who is God over all, 
Hebrews 1.8, your throne, O God, will last forever. 2 Peter 1.1, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. All of these manuscripts predate the Council of Nicaea. So what you cannot say is that the Council of Nicaea got together and said, hey, um, this legendary status about Jesus has grown up over time, and so now we're going we're gonna to vote to see whether Jesus is God or not. I mean, I'm sure it, if that were to happen in some hypothetical or alternate universe, some guy might stand up and be like, hey, dude, we've been writing about this for like 300 years. We don't need to vote on it. We've already written about it. And we wrote about it because, like John says in the beginning of his uh, epistle, his first epistle, where he says, I'm writing these things to you about the things that I saw with my eyes, that I heard with my ears, that I touched with my hands concerning the word of life. I'm writing these things down to you because I was an eyewitness of them. Right? And these are the people who are trans- that, that have transcribed this, and then faithful men after them have transcribed the witness that they left so that, so that ultimately you have to deal with, if you're going to consider the transmission, of, especially of the New Testament, you have to deal with the sayings that, that, that ultimately claim that Jesus Christ is not just a good prophet, but that he is the Lord and God over all. Right? That this is where the evidence is pointing us. So I'll end with this. This is a quote from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying hard here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Well, that's the one thing you mustn't say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. But you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But don't come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that option open to us. He didn't intend to. Right? What you have, guys, is you have a man who lived and claimed to be God. He did extraordinary things to back up his claim. He died a common death, on a cross, at the hands of the Romans. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And if you don't believe that, come next week, and I'll give you really good evidence for that, all right? He rose from the dead. And then, out of that, you have really strong evidence among the primitive church that these these people were absolutely and totally transformed by the life, death, and resurrection of this man. So much so that that they faithfully, in an eyewitness capacity, um, wrote these things down and faithfully transcribed them. And then the early church fathers took on that tradition, and they faithfully transcribed them. And then the early church faithfully transcribed them all the way down through the ages so that you can compare a late Byzantine manuscript that was written just prior to the, to the invention of the printing press and compare it to a document from the second century and they are remarkably the same. Right? Are they different in areas? Yes. And, and that is attributed to, to scribal liberty, to smoothing out sentences based on their intention, on their purpose, whether they're being read out loud or not. But what you have is a, is a faithful transmission of, of ultimately what Jesus said, this man who lived and claimed things about himself and died on a cross and rose from the dead, who ultimately said, you search the scriptures because you think in them they have life, but I'm telling you, the scriptures testify about me. They're talking about me. And what you have now is a faithful transcription of, of 2,000 years of evidence that points to one man, Jesus Christ. 
Nothing else that we have even comes close to the reliability, especially of the New Testament text. Right? And I could preach for 10 more minutes, but I'm going to let you guys come up and you guys can ask some, ask some questions. All right, so if you have questions, here's a red mic over here. You can uh, take it off the uh, stand. Uh, make sure you turn it on um, because it's not on yet. Again, this is David Larson and Joseph Taub. Um, they've been here before, but um, if you have questions about anything I've said, um, now's the time to ask. You've got about 10 minutes. Say your name so we can call you by your name. Yep, there you go. All right, it's on. It's on. Yep. Uh, my name's Luke Tucker. Um, can you quickly talk about why the story of uh, the prostitute uh, and the stones is still in the Bible, if it's pretty well known that it wasn't actually in the Bible uh, <coughs> or in the original text? Yeah. Um, <laughs> because the... Um, because Well... To, to be totally honest with you, based on what I know, because it's too popular to take out. So that's why, in fact, somebody have a study Bible, turn to that passage for me real quick. Um, somebody want to volunteer to do that? Who's got a study Bible? Well, I'm glad everybody's bringing their Bible. Anybody got a study Bible? Seriously? All right, you do back there? Turn to John 7.53. There should be a paragraph right above it. And just read that real loud for us. Um, there's only a handful of manuscripts that, um, I th- in fact, I think, do you guys know? I think there's, there's 10 to 15 maybe um, uh, manuscripts, maybe even less than that, that actually have that section in the Gospel of John. They're all very late Byzantine manuscripts. Um, the earliest uh, accounts of John that we have, uh, especially Alexandrian text-type manuscripts, none of them it have it in that? there. Um, I don't know. I would have to, I would have to look. Um, I would have to look closer at that. Um, I don't know off the top of my head, but if you're really interested, I can find out for you. Um, you are you there? Yeah, well, you want me to read? There should be a paragraph right above John 7.53. That's not the Bible. What does it say? Seeing anything? There you go. Right. So there's a handful of places. Another place that we find this is the longer ending of Mark, right? Um, most Greek manuscripts end at Mark 16.9 and, and, uh, and the rest of Mark. And, and there will be another paragraph at the end of Mark that says, hey, most of the most reliable ancient Greek manuscripts do not contain this um, longer ending of Mark. So the, the, the committees are attempting to withhold their integrity by telling you that this is not really in the Bible, but they leave it in there because, well, imagine what you would be called by a bunch of ignorant people if you took out something. And, and by ignorant, I don't mean that in like a pejorative way. That's pejorative. Um, I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean the people that don't know, right? You take out a section of their Bible, and they're going to call you all kinds of crazy names and burn you at the stake and not buy your Bible, right? So instead, they just say, hey, this wasn't really in the original. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. Get the microphone. Is it is it on? Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. Well, w- one of the impressions you, you potentially could get is because Nathan's extremely thorough, and I, I agree with everything he said. Is that it's just chocked full of these sort of things? But um, I can only think of one or two big sections 
like um, like John eight and Mark sixteen um, out of the whole New Testament. Yep. Um, and and as far as all these multitudes of of little things, often it's it's the difference of of like a, a vowel a might be looking like a vowel o right. in one manuscript mm -hmm. while eighty others have it a. But that but to be fair, Nathan's and others are pointing out that that's a difference. It is. Yeah. But uh, and in some places that actually changes the meaning. So like Romans chapter five verse one. Um, the Greek word is echomen. Um, if, if, if it's an omicron and not an omega, then it changes th the meaning of the word from a subjunctive to an indicative. So it says, um, therefore, um, since we have peace with God, right, versus therefore let us have peace with God. That means two different things, right? And that's a textual variant in Romans 5.1. And it's based on the, the difference of one letter, Right? It's either an Omicron or an Omega. Um, but like David is saying, a lot of this stuff is... Uh, I mean, there's, there, I think there's a, like 150 different ways to, to say a, a sentence in Greek, Jesus loves John. And so word order, you know, spelling, that type of thing, are the vast majority. L let me ask you a question. Yeah. Um, a yes or no? Well, this Q&A just got interesting right here. <laughs> now we moved it up here. Uh, <laughs> Is is the text? Do, do you feel you can comfortably say you have access to the the original words of the text ninety nine point nine percent of the time? Yep. Well, ninety nine point seven five because because a quarter a quarter of one percent a quarter of one percent are are the variants. But again, it's not that the variants. It's not it's not A B C or like X. You know, it's not like Jesus died on the cross or Frank died on the cross, right? It's, it's, it's minor differences between, is it 666 or 616? Well, in that instance, we have to say, I don't know, maybe, but it's not, like I said, 584, right? Um, All right, I, I'm sorry. I can't help myself. I'm, I'm on a roll here. What's your three, name? Three for three. James Parks. James. Uh, my question is, uh, how do you answer someone who is reading the news today, and it seems like every five years there's a new gospel that gets discovered, yeah, yeah. Uh, gospel of Thomas, gospel mm. of Mary, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of them in the, um, in the um, scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm. Uh, I've heard people say before, well, some, some guys got together and decided which books would be the Bible, and they excluded yep. a bunch of these other gospels. Yep. Um, how do you answer that? Yep. Joseph, do you, are you confident answering that? Because I want to give you a chance. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Nathan can probably give a little more detail, but um, I mean, most of those are later. They're either written very much later than the Gospels or they're blatant forgeries. Um, and good scholarship has made that pretty plain. Um, sure. Yeah, I mean, um, a fuller answer is, um, so they're a pseudepigraphal, and what I, what I mean by pseudepigraphal, where'd you go? Oh, there you are. <laughs> it was like, no, that's not. <laughs> um, Pseudepigrapha just means that it's it's a false name writing. So it's like it's like I would write a, a novel and then put you know um, who's a famous author. Um, okay, yeah, J.K. Rowling. Like yeah, I would put her name on it to try to to try to get people to read it. Right, that's called pseudepigrapha. There's a bunch of pseudepigrapha that predates the Gospels, and that's the stuff that's found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. None of those are Gospels. Um, 
the, the gospels that you find, like, like uh, Joseph rightly said, um, date centuries after the historical event, and, and all of them uh, fall into the category of what we would call Gnostic writings. Gnosticism is drastically different from Christianity. It is an early Christian heresy, so they were part of the orthodox stream of Christianity, and then they branched off and became something else, like, kind of like we would say of, of Mormons today, right? So they branched off into something else. If you read the Gospel of Mary, Thomas, Peter, Judas, um, and compare them to the four Gospels, just do it. I mean, you can go online and pull, you can download them for free. Go read them side by side, and what you'll find is that these two things are drastically different. All of them are much later pseudepigraphal and, and do not teach um, the stream of orthodoxy. One of the reasons we know about as much about the Gnostics as we do is because the early church fathers like Irenaeus and, and Justin Martyr and some of these guys wrote extensively against Gnosticism. So Irenaeus' greatest work is called what? Against heresies, right? Who do you think he was writing that about? <laughs> Primarily the Gnostics. And the, and the Gospels that people are saying, well, these got left out. No, they got kicked out by the early church, by the people who knew you guys are off the reservation, teaching stuff that clearly has not been passed down to us by the primitive early church. Does that make sense? That's the answer. Yep, one more question, then we got to go. Hi, I'm Lucy. Chan. Hey, Lucy. You guys know me. Um, so my question is um, about when you get engaging Muslims. Um, so when they say that... The, the text has been corrupt. Um, and given this information that we have here, what, is, what are they basing that on? And do any of you know have any history or background on how Muslims do their apologetic or their kind of textual criticism? You want to address that? Okay. You know anything about it? Okay, I, I probably do. Yeah, I was in, uh, so when I was in Albania, um, this was something that, um, that I ran across and also ran across it in, during my tours in Afghanistan as well, obviously both uh, Muslim countries. And uh, although Albania is, is uh, um, not officially um, Muslim, but there's a lot of Muslims there. Anyway, <clears throat> um, um, basically, and, and I'm not as familiar on the academic level as the, the Muslims who are debating, but, but ultimately what they're doing is, is what, we're, uh, what we would call like deconstructing the text. So just like the Jesus Seminar guys did in the, what date was that? Like 70s-ish? No, the 60s, 70s. yeah. The first wave, though, the very first one. Anyway, yeah, um, a couple decades ago where these guys would, would get, sit down and say, okay, based on the Q source and based on the Lucan material and the uh, Mathean material and, and uh, all the things we have, comparing all, contrasting all these things, we're confident that Jesus actually said this. And there's only like three or four lines, right, that, that we're saying with, with pure confidence we're saying Jesus said this. And so uh, Muslims typically jump on that bandwagon to say, hey, the early Christian church um, has created um, the, uh, a, this, this legendary status about Jesus, but that's not actually who Jesus was. He, he fell more in line with uh, what Muhammad said that he was, and that was a, actually a really special prophet. Um, even Muhammad said that he was the greatest, pro- uh, that Jesus was the greatest prophet, Isa. Um, but the, the problem is, is, is in creating this legendary status, I mean, you, you, they're starting to run rough, roughshod against all of the evidence that we have that is, even now, I mean, uh, um, just uh, in the last three to five years, there have been a handful of other manuscripts that, um, uh, one Mark and one Luke, um, that have been discovered that date well into the first century. And so now, now you're, you're having to be like, okay, um, 
if people did create this legendary status about Jesus, why would, why would it come out of a people group that are least likely to do something like that, right? This, is the, this, comes, this would come out of a people group who are, um, who are the least likely people in the entire earth to say that Yahweh is the Father and also the Son. That's why Jews today look at us and they're like, you guys are heretics, right? And, and out of the Jews came... Um, Christianity and 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 a, a, a ton more apolo- apologetic issues around um, uh, why was there such a uh, uh, why was there such an early primitive tradition about a uh, high Christology of Jesus as as early on as it was. So the last thing I'll do to plug this weekend is um, this Saturday in stage two um, th- uh, we're doing an apologetic uh, conference called Who Do You Say That I Am and we are covering this exact question: um, How do we know? that Jesus was not developed into legendary status by the primitive church? How do we know that that decade or two decades between the resurrection and the first written gospel, that all of this stuff wasn't made up, right? And we've got some of the top scholars in the world who deal in these issues who are going to come and equip us um, to handle questions like that, okay? So if you haven't registered for that already and all you're doing Saturday is sitting on your bum watching football, then DVR it and get your butt up here, all right? (laughs) So... Anyway, hey, we're three minutes over. I apologize. I know tonight was a lot. If you have more questions, please come up. I'm really tired, but y'all have a good, y'all have a good night.